welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It is a blessing to be with you this morning. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. This morning we continue to focus on the story of redemption and how its foundations are laid in Genesis. The very first verse introduces the main character in the story. It's God. God is the main character. He is introduced as the creator who existed before time as Father, Son, and Spirit. We also begin to see that He is a good God who formed and filled a good world. Then this good God creates mankind and sets them apart from the other creatures as his representatives on the earth. The creator even goes so far as to make mankind in his image after his own likeness. God also provides a garden paradise with everything mankind would need, including two unique trees. By eating from the tree of life, man could go on living in paradise. And by not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man could exercise the fear of the Lord through obedience. And we saw that how that even in the garden, the fear of the Lord was present and was good and was necessary for life. Life before God, the Creator. The good Creator God designs mankind so that they can enjoy perfect relationship and rest with Him in this world. Now, each Sunday I've attempted to show you three things. First, the meaning of the text itself. Then, the biblical themes that have their roots in the text. And then finally, how those themes point to Christ crucified as the foundation of our joy as Christians. So, those three things. This morning, we are going to focus on the biblical theme that... Marriage matters to God. Marriage matters to God and therefore should matter to us as as His people. With that in mind, let's read Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25 together. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray and go to the Lord asking Him to reveal our own hearts. The word is called uh, the sword of the, the Spirit. And for that reason, we as Christians are supposed to ask that that sword, that blessed sword, would penetrate to the depths of our hearts and would sink deep and cut out the sin that clings to us and the false ideas and the, and the lies of this world that cling to our minds and hearts, we're, we're told to ask and plead with the Lord to do that. So would you please do that with me this morning? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is truth and wisdom, that it is life to us if we hear it and receive it with humility and then we go out in the power of the Spirit and seek to obey your word. I thank you so much for the songs that we sang this morning that encourage the Christian that if we will come to you in humility and in faith, clinging to Christ's righteousness, that there is now no condemnation, no matter what our past life was like. And Lord, that if we will continue to live in humility and repentance daily, that if we confess our daily sins because we still are sinful daily, that if we do that, that you will wash us clean, that you will remove the guilt. Lord, that we can live with you in, in peace, knowing that Christ has paid for it all. Lord, I pray that if there is anything in in this passage or in the sermon this morning that that someone sitting here today has not gotten right with you and is living in rebellion to you, Lord, that the Spirit of God would convict, instruct, and guide that believer into repentance so that they can continue to walk with you. Would you do that today for your glory and for our good? Amen. So have you, I have a question, so have you ever sat around with friends and heard stories about how they first met their spouse? This is one of Kelsey and my favorite things to do when we we meet new people, and I'll be honest with you, I get a kick out of telling the story, and it might grow a little bit grander each time, but it's something that we enjoy a lot, at least I do, I don't know about Kelsey. Some couples met as like as childhood friends, like from the time that they first remember. And then others, other couples met as adults and were literally married within just a couple of months because they were like, hey, I'm, I've been ready for a while and this is what I was looking for, you know? So that's, that's what some people's stories are. These stories usually generate a lot of laughter and smiles as you remember and get a taste or a small taste of the emotional highs and lows of that time in life. The process of discovering whether or not a person is the person is filled with excitement, fear, hope, tears, victories, and failures. The emotions that we feel are so diverse and mysterious that human reason and science fail to explain its complexity. They just cannot explain where all this comes from. As an example, when I first met Kelsey, it was a rainy day. And I was standing with a group of people who were all waiting to go on an evangelistic outreach. 
And as most single young men, I was, you know, making a mental note of the young ladies in the crowd that I'd not yet met yet. Just, you know, we're going to do the evangelism first and then the, you know, dating later. I, I, I understood that, but for later. At this point, another young lady comes walking up to join the group. But then suddenly she turns around and runs all the way back to her building as if she had forgot something. About a minute later she comes out, but this time she is wearing brightly colored rain boots, which she then intentionally drags through the rain puddles along her path. Now I doubt anyone else noticed any of this, but when I saw that, I thought to myself, now that's a girl. And I really like that. I cannot explain to you why I felt that way. It's not like I wrote down on my must-have list that she must have or must like to splash in puddles with her rain boots. But I can tell you one thing. In my experience, I, I had never met a fully grown man who would run all the way back to his building, to his room, to put on brightly colored rain boots so that he could dance in the rain. I just had never met one. In that moment, without realizing it, I was rejoicing in the way that God designed woman. Like man, but so wonderfully different. She possessed qualities that I simply did not have on my own. Because that is the way that God designed men and women in the very beginning. When we look at Genesis 2, it is painfully painfully clear that God is the designer of every good thing that is given to mankind. Last week we spoke about the conditions of paradise that God was establishing. There was food, water, beauty, purpose, the fear of the Lord, and perfect relationships. This was all by God's design. And as we'll see today, God also designed marriage. Marriage matters because God designed marriage. Now I'm making a pretty big truth claim here. And I don't want us just to skip over it. I am claiming that the scriptures I just read are factual. They're true. That God did create the universe and that he did create man and woman as described in Genesis 1 and 2. And that Adam and Eve were real historical people. It is essential that we agree on these truth claims. Because if you deny the trustworthiness of the Genesis account, then Genesis is of no benefit to you. And the rest of what we're going to speak about today will have no foundation to stand on in your mind. If you believe that you are nothing more than an intelligent ape that simply wants its species to survive, then marriage will not ultimately matter to you. If you believe that marriage is just a cultural construct to suppress sexual desire, then marriage will not matter to you, and you may even oppose it. If you believe that marriage is a governmental protection for people who find one another economically agreeable, then marriage will not ultimately matter to you. Ultimately, 
Christians believe that marriage matters because God designed it. He instituted it. And do not think of Him as a designer who initiates a good thing and then hands it over to humanity to do us what, with whatever, whatever we want to. As with all things that God designed and created, He continues to act as the witness and the judge of how we steward the good things He has created. And when it comes to marriage, Scripture will progressively reveal that this good gift from God is elevated to the significance of a sacred covenant or promise made before God. We get the first hint that the joining of one man and one woman as a sacred covenant before God in Genesis 2. We see that the entire scene is orchestrated by God. Then God creates the woman and brings her to Adam. And then verse 24 tells us that the bond of marriage is even deeper than the bond between an adult child and his parents. Genesis lays the foundation of marriage in the creation account. But later passages will go further to emphasize that marriage is a sacred covenant made before God. With God as the witness of your promises and with God as the judge of any violations of the covenant. Malachi 2 provides one of the clearest examples of the fact that God has always defined marriage as a sacred covenant made before Him. Malachi is calling Israel to repent of their sins and return to the Lord, explaining to them the reasons that God is not blessing them. Explaining to them the reasons why God does not hear their prayers or receive their offerings. Malachi explains to them this, the reason why. He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? Going, talking about it back in Genesis 2. Did he, God, not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, this man covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. In Malachi 2.14, God is said to be the witness between husband and wife. The witness of their covenant or promise between one another. Then in verse 16, then verse 16 depicts God as the judge over the covenant. Declaring it evil for a man to abandon his wife and also the one who gives the discipline towards the one who is unfaithful. So when a man and a woman join one another in covenant relationship, they are making a promise to one another. But more significantly, they are making a promise with God as their witness and with God as their judge. Let's look at one more passage emphasizing God as the designer of marriage before we go on. Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, some Pharisees were attempting to find fault with Jesus' teaching. And to test Him, they ask Him about divorce. Jesus answers by quoting from Genesis 2. He says to them, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, he quotes Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2 and then makes this application. These are Jesus' words about Genesis 2. He says, So they, husband and wife, are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus looks all the way back to Genesis 2, to the creation account, and says that God, what, what, what God did for Adam and Eve, bringing them together in a sacred covenant, that God is still doing this today. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is applying what God did for Adam and Eve to what God has been doing throughout history, joining one man and one woman in marriage. Marriage matters because God designed it. God designed it as a sacred covenant with God as the witness and the judge of it and with God as the one who joins man and woman together. Returning to Genesis 2, we see that marriage also matters because it is not good to be alone. We read in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This sentence is meant to jump out at the reader because during the creation account in chapter 1, the phrase is repeated, And God saw that what he created was good. That's what he's declared throughout the creation account. But here in chapter 2, verse 18, God declares for the first time that something is not good. Now let's be clear, God is not saying that what he has made is evil. Instead, God is emphasizing that man is incomplete or insufficient if he were to remain alone. And this incompleteness or insufficiency was not a mistake on God's part. Instead, God intentionally created man with the desire for human relationships and with the need for woman in order to multiply and fill the earth with more image bearers of God. God most certainly could have designed Adam without the desire for human relationships and with the ability to fill the earth with offspring all on his own. God could have done that. But God had a better plan in mind. So God declared that it is not good for the man to be alone because it was not according to God's plan. So for a man to dream of living on an island paradise all by himself with just a faithful dog and a somewhat talkative parrot, for a man to dream of life is not good. It's just not good. Adam had it even better than that. And God declared his situation not good. Even the animals in the garden were perfectly in submission to Adam, but the friendship of animals was insufficient to meet Adam's God-given need for human relationships. Stories like Robinson Crusoe or the modern movie Castaway vividly depict the God-given need for human relationships. In Castaway, Tom Hanks plays a character who is stranded on a deserted island due to a plane crash. 
And his God-given desire for human relationship becomes so intense that he paints a smiley face on a volleyball that he found in the wreckage, calls it Wilson, and begins speaking to it and carrying it around as if it were his friend. It is not good for a man or a woman to be alone in this world. God has given us the need for human relationships. God declared it not good for the man to be alone and then provides the solution to Adam's loneliness. God designs woman. But God doesn't form Eve out of the dust like he did Adam and the animals. No, God puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib from Adam's side, and with that rib, God builds, the Hebrew word is God builds Eve to correspond to Adam perfectly according to his design. And in the first marriage ceremony there in the garden that we read about, God acting as the father, almost like the father of the bride, brings Eve to Adam. And when Adam sees Eve, he can't help but break out into poetry because of the goodness of God and the perfection of God's design in woman. Adam says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is poetry. He is exulting in the goodness of God through this gift. Adam had just spent most of the sixth day naming the animals that God brought to him in the garden. And throughout that day, Adam would have seen male and female pairs of animals who, who looked like one another and seemed to fit one another. But of all the creatures that God brought to Adam to be named, none were like Adam. We can't know for sure, but it would seem reasonable that Adam may have been wondering whether or not there was a creature out there in the woods somewhere like him. Someone who looks something like him, who could understand him and speak with him on his level. Someone who shared the image of God and who would, who would with him tend and keep the garden as well as rule over creation with him at his side. Maybe God's entire purpose in first sending the animals to Adam to be named was because God wanted to emphasize the uniqueness and the perfection of woman in Adam's mind and in the reader's mind and in later believers' minds. We can assume this because as soon as Adam sees Eve, he says, at last, as if he had been looking, at last, Someone like me, but so wonderfully different than me. We know that Adam immediately appreciated the uniqueness, the difference of Eve. Because when he names Eve, he does not call her man 2.0 or man the second. No, in the Hebrew language, you can see and hear the meaning of how Adam names Eve. He says, she shall be called Ishshah. Because she was taken out of Ish. Ishsha means woman. Ish means man. Even in the naming of man and woman, you can see and hear that they are like one another, but different. And this was always the purpose and plan of God. 
Men and women were never supposed to be mirror images of one another. In fact, it is the combination of likeness yet difference between men and women that make them so incredibly compatible. Because where one is naturally weak, the other is typically designed by God to be naturally strong. Men have strengths and weaknesses. Women have strengths and weaknesses. But together, Christian men and women have the ability to redeem one another's weaknesses and encourage growth in one another's strengths. God declares that it is not good to be alone, so He fashions the first family unit, Adam and Eve, and He gives them the ability to reproduce more image bearers of God who would also increase the joy of humanity in the form of more human relationships. We're talking about children. Now the family grows and there is more opportunity for human relationships. The family was originally designed by God in the garden so that mankind would never have to live alone. This is a good God who is giving good gifts to His people. There are countless types of human relationships. There are friends, neighbors, co-workers, relatives. Even just meeting another person from South Africa can give you an automatic bond if you're traveling abroad. But we realize that there are different, differing depths of these relationships. The bond between parents and children, for example, is one of the strongest relationships naturally. Young children, whether they know it or not, and usually they don't know it, young children are desperately, they desperately want their parents to succeed at parenting, at being mom and dad. They desperately want that. Children thrive under consistent love and discipline, compassion and guidance, fun and work. And even when a child becomes an adult, moving out of the house to make their own way in life, even then, they will often think back to whatever joyful and happy moments they had in their childhood home. Whether it feels like it right now or not, there is amazing God-given potential for deep relationships between parents and children. So, if you're a parent right now with either young children who are feel like just like constantly at odds with you or you're constantly having to correct them, or if you're an older parent whose children have left the home and they're off doing their own things and the relationship is a little strained right now, either way, we can see that God created the family unit with great potential for this deep type of relationship. But the scriptures tell us that there is another human relationship that is designed by God to be even deeper and stronger than the parent-child relationship. God designed marriage between one man and one woman to be the greatest and strongest human relationship, making it the only relationship where two people become one where two people become one marriage matters because in marriage two become one 
Genesis 2 verse 24 gives us the practical application of the first wedding ceremony. He says, therefore, talking about the pattern that God established with Adam and Eve. He says, therefore, in verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. To leave father and mother does not mean that you have to live on the other side of town from your parents. I am sorry, it's just not a biblical excuse. And it certainly does not mean cutting off all relational ties or treating your parents like they're strangers. There is every biblical reason for married adults to still respect, honor, serve, and cherish their parents. In fact, if, you, if doing these things is not at least the desire of your heart, then I would suggest that there's something amiss in the ongoing child-parent relationship. Yes, the parent-child relationship should remain healthy and vibrant if at all possible. But the relationship does not remain the same when a child becomes an adult. As a child grows into an adult, the relationship should mature into a deep friendship between adults. The expectation among Christian parents should be that the vast majority of adult children will desire to leave their parents' house and take hold of another. This is good and right no matter what, you know, the movie Father of the Bride. Is that what it's called? Father of the Bride? Yeah. No matter what that one depicts for us, how the parents are just trying to, at least in that movie, hang on to the daughter. It's like, oh, I can't believe she's leaving. You know, this is actually good and right that Christian adult children leave and cleave or leave and hold fast to another. This is good in God's sight. And to seal and bless... I'm sorry, I skipped a part. So to leave does not mean to break relationship, but instead points to the moment when a man or a woman leaves their first family unit in order to form a new family unit. The deep friendship with parents remains, but marriage publicly declares that a husband and wife's first allegiance is now promised to another, they take hold of, an, of one another. And Christian parents who are seeing their children go off and do this should encourage them to do this with all faithfulness in the Lord. If they are doing this in the Lord and for the Lord's glory. To seal and bless this covenant of marriage, God created men and women with the ability to become one flesh physically through sexual intimacy. Now, I prefer not to make any diagrams on this point, but when a husband and a wife come together, they are physically joined together to one another. God gave this as a gift to marriage to strengthen the covenant relationship, gluing the husband and wife together in a covenant that is supposed to last a lifetime. God also gave this physical gift so that a husband and a wife would be able to express their unity and fulfill the command of God by being fruitful and multiplying, as we saw earlier in Genesis. 
Creating a child together was designed by God to be the outcome of the greatest relationship marriage. And in the garden, there would have never have been such a thing as a miscarriage or infertility. In the garden, when you were married, there were children. This is the God's good design before the brokenness of our world came in. But becoming one flesh does not end with the physical union or with the physical outcome of that union, talking about children. Becoming one flesh was always meant to be more than just that. God's design was for husbands and wives to become one flesh in every aspect of their lives. Joining um, them emotionally, intellectually, financially, spiritually, and in every other way. To the point that over time and with practice, a husband and wife begin to live life as one complete that was God's design. How do I know this? How do I know that this is what God originally intended for marriage? Because very few people think about marriage this way. We can know this because God's word tells us in Ephesians 5 and in other places that husbands and wives are to become one as Christ is one with his church. Which leads us to our fourth and final point. Marriage matters because marriage depicts Christ and His bride. In Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 32, Paul writes this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he, Jesus Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and out without blemish. This is Christ's love for his church. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Verse 31 might sound familiar. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's verse 32. I'm quoting Ephesians right now. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul quotes before that Genesis 2.24, going all the way back to the creation and before the fall of mankind into sin. He quotes Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound. Which means this thing, once hidden in ages past, 
is now revealed. This is profound, is what he's saying. A mystery in the New Testament almost always refers to something hidden in past ages, but that the coming of Christ has revealed to mankind. So Paul is saying that Genesis 2 verse 24, which speaks of one man and one woman becoming one flesh in the sacred covenant of marriage, that its ultimate purpose was hidden in past ages, but now has been revealed in Christ. Because marriage was always intended to depict depict the beauty of Christ's love for His people, His bride. This fact will go on to be the foundation for Paul's reasoning as to why women who also bear the image of God and who are equal in value before God, why these amazing creations of God should respect and submit to their own husband's leadership. This is the reason. The reason Christian women do this is because they want to put on public display the beauty of the church and submission to Christ. That's why women do this, why Christian women do this. And the fact that marriage depicts Christ's love for His bride is also the foundation for why men should love their wives as Christ loved the church, laying down their lives daily for their wives because she is your own flesh. You are both one flesh. Christian men do this because they want to put on public display the beauty of the Savior who hung on the cross for His He hung on the cross for his bride. From the very beginning, marriage was designed to depict the love of Christ, the love of God for his people. And at the very end of this, this age, there will be a marriage ceremony where God will present the church to Christ as his bride. The bride that he created, redeemed, sanctified and will eventually glorify. Now I know that there was a lot of heavy things today and that there is a lot of brokenness in this world. And the point of today's sermon is not to make marriage the ultimate pursuit of your life. It is not. Because there is only one pursuit that will ultimately bring you complete satisfaction and rest for your soul. And that is the pursuit of joy in Christ. That is the only pursuit that will satisfy you. But, as we saw in Genesis 2, if your hope and joy is firmly planted in Christ as your ultimate treasure, then marriage can be a great blessing as you navigate this life for the glory of God. It can be a great blessing to you if that is God's will for you. The point of today's message is actually, it's not not to elevate marriage to be the pursuit of your life. That's not the point. The point is actually to show you the beauty of Christ and His way 
to, re- to show you the mystery revealed and how that we can act out in our marriages the beauty of Christ and His bride. That is the one point, one purpose of today's sermon. But the other point is to make a plea to you. Please do not believe the lie of the devil that marriage doesn't matter because it's being yelled at you and advertised to you from every angle, from every source, sometimes even from within Christianity, that marriage doesn't really matter, that you can take marriage and make it whatever you want it to be. Please do not believe the lie of the devil that you can just test out marriage by living and sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Or that you can continue subscribing to pornographic websites. Or cheat on your wife during business trips because what she doesn't know can't hurt her. Feeding every sexual desire of your flesh as if it was nothing more than drinking coffee or ordering takeouts because that's what I felt like at the moment. God is the author of marriage and He will not be mocked. He will not idly stand by if His people defame the marriage covenant before this lost world. He will not stand by idly. If you reject His way and walk in unrepentant sin, then God stands as the witness and the judge against you. Please hear that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you are living in a nonchalant way, despising God and His way, and you are not living in the fear of the Lord, and you are not walking in wisdom with Him. So please, I plead with you, fear Him. Repent if you are defacing the sacred covenant of marriage. And I'm not talking just to people who are married. If you are single, you can still deface the sacred covenant of marriage in the sight of the world around you by the way you live. So this is for everyone. For those who humble themselves and repent of their sins, God promises that He will lift you up out of the ashes of your mistakes and wash you clean with His blood. Think about the songs we sang before the service. No guilt in life, no fear in death. That is only true of you if you are, if you fear the Lord and you walk with Him. No, no guilt in this life, no matter what your past life was like. He says there will be no guilt in this life and no fear in death. That is the promise to Christians who walk with their God in humility and repentance daily. Because we will keep on failing. We will. And he says, run to me. Come to me, all who labor and who are weary, and I will give you rest. That's his promise to you, to those who, are, who come to him in humility 
and repentance and who begin following him. Now, I don't want to whitewash the brokenness of this world because there are long-lasting consequences to the sin in our past life. There are consequences that we will take with us through life because of our past sin. But as you look around this room at your Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, we all should be able to recount for you the ways that we have failed to meet God's righteous standard. How we have failed to fulfill God's perfect design for marriage and have so often brought brokenness into this world and into our own homes. But for the Christian, this is where Christ meets you. When you humble yourself before the Lord and declare your repentance for your brokenness and your desperate need of the Savior, of the perfect husband who will cleanse his bride and will bring her safely home. He's promised. We all need this. We all have brought brokenness into the world. None are righteous. No, not one. So if you are living in this brokenness right now, rejoicing in sin, hiding your face from the light of the gospel or the light of God's word because of sin, then I plead with you, hide from God no longer. Bring your sin into the light and repent of it. Turn from it and receive the cleansing that Christ provides. He has not rejected you. The only question is, are you rejecting Him? Because only when you come to Him in humility and repentance daily, only then can you begin to enjoy the blessings of walking with God and others according to the way that God designed us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word and I pray that it would be a balm to your people, to those who come to you in humility and repentance, that your word, that your word would be brought to them as healing, as hope, as life, so that we can live this life with no guilt and with no fear because we have trusted in the righteousness of Christ and not our own. Yet, Lord, I I do realize that some may walk out of this room today saying, that's a nice opinion. That was a long-winded speech about marriage, which I don't even agree about. Lord, I pray for those who have rejected your way. Lord, would the Spirit of God work in each heart, no matter where they're at. And may your will be done in this community Lord, would you grow your church in Christ's likeness that we would grow in maturity, putting off the world in its ways and clinging to Christ in his way of life. I pray that for your people. I pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God would go out convicting those who have not yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that they're still eating the manna of this world and rejoicing in it rather than in God the Creator. Would you do this for your glory and for our good? In Christ's name, amen.